Good to see everybody here today. Um, I want to pray before we get started with our uh, message this morning. We all join me. Father, we thank you for letting us get together this morning, and we thank you for a place to meet. God, as we unpack what your word says today, I pray that our hearts are uh, wide open and that you would speak to us what is true and what uh, we need to hear more than anything. God, we love you, and we thank you for being a God who speaks to us uh, even today. I pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we have to have a boring history lesson before we start the sermon today. Uh, it's very important because today's passage is kind of an asterisk in our uh, New Testaments, and we need to talk about the asterisks. I think it's going to be very important. So you guys know the Bible's an old book, right? It, it wasn't written, you know, a couple years ago. It was written thousands and thousands of years ago. It's actually a collection of books that we've all compiled together to make it a little easy to carry around. And because it is an old book, I cannot go somewhere and look at the first edition of John's letter, right? It doesn't, it doesn't exist. We don't have a copy of John's letter in John's handwriting, okay? We can handle this. Uh, the copies that we have are thousands of years old, don't get me wrong, but we don't have number one. Uh, the Bible's written in all kinds of different languages. Um, they're written down on parchment. Parchment falls apart, right? So when somebody, you know, in a church somewhere or cleans out their basement, finds, you know, a pot with some scrolls inside of it, and they look at it and they realize that they have a copy of the book of John, it's a huge deal. Like, it's a really big deal to find, you know, an old copy of that. And I'm very thankful that there are smart people that exist in this world that will look at all of these copies of the Bible that we have and say, you know what, we should translate this into English so that Brian Roder can understand what the Bible says. That's a really good thing to say. I don't have to learn biblical Greek and Hebrew in order to understand what God's Word has to say to me. Thank goodness, because my brain is full. I can't fit any more languages up in there. Uh, saves us a lot of work. So here's what they do. A committee. This is really how it works. A committee of Bible translators will get together and they'll lay out all the copies that we have of all the Bibles. Sometimes we have like the tiniest little scrap and they read it and they're like, oh my goodness, that's John chapter 3. We have like a tiny little copy of just John chapter 3. Other times we have like the whole thing. Like we have a whole book from start to finish and that's like an amazing find uh, when that happens. So all these people, they gather up all of these copies, they put them in a room, and they say, okay, let's translate this, let's put this in English. You know what amazes me? Overwhelmingly, like 99.99% of the time, every copy that we have agrees with every other copy that we have. Have you ever thought about the kind of the miracle that that is? That I can go and find a scrap of the book of John from AD 200, and it's going to match up with the scrap that I have from AD 400. And then it's going to line up with the scrap that I have that was translated into Latin from AD 500 or whatever. That all of these copies all line up together. They all match. They tell the same stories in the same orders, using the same words. And if there ever is a discrepancy, it's usually like, oh, this, this copy left a the off. Like literally, it's that small of differences that we have between all the copies of the Old, Test- Old and New Testament. People have been faithfully copying God's Word down for centuries, over and over and over again. And because of that, I can trust, we can trust that the Bible that, that I have right here is the copy that God wanted me to have. This is, this is the message that He has for me. 
I also really appreciate that these smart people that sit in rooms and translate the Bible into English for me are incredibly transparent about the process, right? They will, they will write, if you look in the beginning of your Bible, there's a very, very boring and hard-to-read introduction. And it's there for a reason. It's there to tell you, the committee says, hey, here's kind of the rules that we went when we were translating these, this book. And here's how we handled grammatical issues. And here's how we translated this word and on and on and on. So that people like us can go, oh, we, like, we get to peek behind the curtain and see how all of this took place. How is it that I ended up with this English Bible that I have with me? And they are very careful to point out when there's a little hiccup, when there's an asterisk. And today's passage is an asterisk. Did you know that? If you'll look in your Bibles... At the very beginning of John chapter 8, you're going to have some kind of note. There's going to be an asterisk of some time. My Bible translators were very, very mean because they put the little note and then the passage that we're going to study is in even smaller type than the rest of the Bible. And my old eyes have to hold my Bible even closer to be able to see what it says. But I bet you if you look at the very, very end of John chapter 7 or the very beginning of John chapter 8, somewhere you're going to have an asterisk. Here's what mine says. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 through 8.11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7.36, John 21.25, Luke 21.38, or Luke 24.53. You guys have an asterisk? I bet you do. So what, is, what are the Bible editors saying to me? The people that got down, that translated my Bible into English, what are they saying about this? They're saying, hey, this passage is kind of different because in the very oldest copies of the Bible that we have, like 8200, this passage doesn't show up. We don't really know why. And if it does show up, sometimes it shows up in a different spot in the, in the Gospel of John or in the Gospel of Luke. That's kind of weird, Right? The vast majority of the Bible all matches up with itself, but this passage is kind of, huh, I don't know what happened here. But, so we got to talk about this. It's very important to talk about the asterisks. They do say, we're going to include this passage because it does show up. Now, considering the job, right? You've got a monk working by candlelight and uh, ink and a feather pen, and he's copying the Bible over and over and over again so that we can have copies, we're bound to make mistakes here and there, right? Like, I can't imagine that process would go perfectly. But I do appreciate the transparencies that the Bible translator said, hang on a second, this passage is a little unusual because of this. I feel like it makes the Bible more trustworthy. If they tried to sweep that under the rug and pretend like nothing was different about this passage, that kind of puts a question mark in your mind, right? So instead of a question mark, we have an asterisk that we have to deal with. There's no reason to think that this... Let's talk about this. What do we do then? If we know that this passage is kind of different than all the other passages we read about in the Bible, what do we do about it? Uh, one day, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit down with Jesus when I get to heaven and say, what happened? How did this happen? How did we get this little asterisk in all of our Bibles? I think it could be that we just haven't found the oldest copy that includes this passage in the right order. Here's why I think it's legit, Okay. Nobody in the early church, we're talking like the very, very, very beginning of the church, ever once wrote down, hey, wait a minute, I read a copy of John's uh, gospel the other day, and it had this passage that that never happened. And I know this because my dad was there. Do you know what I'm saying? 
Like the people that were the earliest part of the church never once said, I, went, I was a visitor at this church the other day and they read from John chapter 8 and that didn't happen. That's totally made up and I don't know where that came from. That never, ever happened. We don't ever have anyone raising their hand at the earliest phase of the church and saying, that, that shouldn't be in there. I don't know how that got in there. That's a really good sign. If the early church didn't question it, then maybe we should be like, okay, this is legit. I think this passage is also legit because it fits with the rest of the Bible. Like when we read what, John, what Jesus did in this passage, it's not like he's summoning a dragon from Middle Earth where you're like, what? Where did this come from? That never happened. Like that's totally out of character. It never says that Jesus was not actually God's son. He was just a created being. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't have any heresy in it that makes us go, that, that, that can't be right. Like where did that come from? So because of those two reasons, I'm like, okay, I think this passage is legit. I don't know why we don't have old copies of it, but we're, I'm going to ask Jesus someday, okay? And I'm really glad that this passage is in the Bible because it has one of the most beautiful pictures of grace that was, that's in our entire Bibles, without a doubt. Okay, boring history lesson is over. I thought it was important to talk about that so we can all be on the same page. Y'all read with me from uh, John chapter 8. I'll start at the very beginning. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand up before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Isn't that a great story? Let's recap. Jesus often went to places like the temple courts. As he traveled around, he went to wherever the people were. He wanted to be around crowds when it was time to start teaching. There would have been a ton of people there at the temple courts. It, was like the, it wasn't just like a religious focal point, like where you went to church, but it was also like a, a social focal point. People went there to meet up with their neighbors and discuss things. It's kind of like maybe headed to the city market on a Friday night or going to Food Truck Tuesday uh, at Mississippi Park. You know, There's just a lot of people. And Jesus went and he sat down and said, nah, it's time for teaching, right? That was what he did. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the other side of the story here, are the religious rulers. They're the bosses. They read from the Old Testament and they teach it to God's people. They teach them about God and the law 
and the things that he wanted them to do. They, it was kind of a prestigious position. It was, they were important people in, in the community. They were the bosses. They flaunted it. They loved to be in charge. And Jesus often highlights their hypocrisy. Jesus got angry with them. He pointed out all the ways that they neglected to follow God's law or misunderstood God's law. And even worse, they taught other people badly about God's law and taught them to misunderstand God's law. And because of that, Jesus was a threat. Jesus would often point out to them, here's all the ways that you have misunderstood what God, my Father, was trying to say. And at a certain point in his life, Jesus, they, they decide to try and trap Jesus. They have to get rid of him. They, he, they are losing power in front of the people because of Jesus. So in marches this woman. She gets drug in, into the circle while Jesus was teaching. And the text says that she was caught in the act of adultery. I don't know what kind of state of dress she was in that day. I cannot imagine the embarrassment and then the Pharisees throw God's law in Jesus' face. They know that if he tells them, oh, we should be merciful and not judge this woman, well, then Jesus is soft on crime, right? And then he makes them look bad in front of everybody else. But if he orders the woman to be stoned, that's not a good look either, is it? They think they have Jesus trapped. And in the middle is a woman who's half-naked and was just caught in a terrible sin. This woman is being used by a bunch of religious people. You know, I'm not sure where the man is in this story. Do you notice he's interestingly absent from this storm? And I'm pretty sure it takes two people to, be, to commit the act of adultery. Am I right? I think I am. And yet somehow he's absent. They just dragged the woman. A bunch of religious guys did. Everything about this situation is off, and it's wrong, and it's ugly. I should probably point out that the Pharisees were right. Did you know that? Let me quote the law that the Pharisees are referring to. They didn't just make this up. Leviticus chapter 20 says this, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. That's in the Old Testament. So were the Pharisees correct that this woman should be killed for her crime? Yes. Were they cruel to use a woman's life to try and trap Jesus? Yes. This is a nasty situation. And it's times like this where if, if I were at Jesus' spot, I'd be like, ooh, how am I going to get out of this one? Right? I'm in a rock and a hard place. Everybody have this scene in their mind so far? I know I say this a lot, but I, always put, I, I put myself in the Bible scenes to just sort of try and relate to it more. It helps me to imagine the scene of how it's all going down. And usually where I, where I put myself in the scene depends on my mood or like what kind of, how I feel like I'm doing spiritually. If I'm feeling super self-righteous, I'm Jesus, like, you know, dispensing grace, grace and truth to everybody. If I'm feeling bad about myself, well, maybe that day I'm the woman caught in adultery, right? That happens. The truth is, I probably have an awful lot in common with the Pharisees, those guys that we love to make fun of when we're teaching, right? That's probably the closest to me as anybody. 
I'm trained in religion. They were trained in religion. I lead God's people. They lead God's people. I probably get way too comfortable with tradition. And, and I forget that traditions need to point people to God. That's the point of traditions. But what they do in this story seems evil to me. Just evil. To use a woman like this in order to trap one of your political, spiritual, religious enemies? It's one thing to know God's law and to apply it correctly. That's important. We're all called to do that. It's another to try and use that situation to trap somebody else. It's one thing to know that God's law says there's a punishment for this sin. And it's a whole other thing to use the situation and create a scene about getting to throw rocks at a woman until she's dead. Something's off. And like we so often see in the Gospels, the Pharisees are technically correct. Their outside appearance is good. They're being good, law-abiding Jewish people, but inside they're full of rotted bones. They're like tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside they're dead. That's actually something else Jesus said about them. Then Jesus stoops over to write in the dirt. And then he speaks one tiny little sentence, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stoops down and writes in the dirt some more. I looked up on YouTube videos. I was kind of thinking about playing a clip. There's a, a hundred different, you know, uh, Bible project kind of videos where they try and recreate these biblical scenes. And I don't know, they, they all, they had this kind of commonality. Everyone that I watched was super slow. Like Jesus is just kind of doodling. And the camera's just focused on him going like this in the dirt for a while. And the, you know, the, the Pharisees are all yelling at him, demanding that he make a decision. And what's Jesus doing? I don't know, weather reports... You know, Einstein's theory of relativity. I don't know what he was writing. Did you know that when we have no idea what he was writing in the dirt? The Bible never says. It just says that he's doing this. Like he has, doesn't have a care in the world. I think that is so interesting. Nobody knows what he's writing, but I have heard a lot of speculations. There are lots of people who have tried to guess, which is fine. I mean, I guess there's no way we can prove them right or wrong. Some people say that as he was writing, he, he went over here in front of this Pharisee and he wrote you know, that Pharisee's sin that, they, that he struggles with. And then he went over in front of this Pharisee and he wrote down the, the, the sin that that Pharisee struggles with. I don't know, maybe, sure. I know that if you wrote my sins down in front of everybody else, I'd probably throw, put my rock down too. Some says that, that he might have written parts of God's law in the dirt that talk about the mercy that God has. I don't know, maybe. My, my opinion on what, really, what he wrote is just as valid as everybody else's, I guess. I kind of think he was just doodling. Like, not really interested in getting sucked into the debate. You know what I mean? Like, da-da-da-da-da. Just passing the time until he lets this little ball of truth out for it to blow up in everybody's face. I don't know. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. See, that's the part 
that's the thing about God's law, is it is so hard to keep. I'm going to say it's impossible to keep. If, If you were in the crowd that day, holding a stone, waiting for Jesus to say, kill her, would you have been able to throw that rock? Man, stoning is an ugly way to go, isn't it? I mean, they're either, they're either talking about just throwing rocks at a person until they're dead. Sometimes they throw her in a pit and just chuck rocks at her until she's so beaten up that she's not alive anymore. That's what we're talking about. Are any of us in this room without sin? I'm looking for hands raised. Better not be any. Are any of us qualified to be judge and executioner of anybody else? Nope. When we go back and we read the Old Testament, like the laws that, they, that, G, that we're talking about right now, it can be overwhelming. The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's where we find the bulk of God's law. And there are a lot of rules, a lot of rules. There's rules about what kind of seafood you can and can't eat. There's rules about what to do when you get mildew on the walls of your house. There's rules about what to do when you get a funny rash. There's rules about what to do in society when there's a conflict. Like, how do we Jewish people resolve conflicts that we have with each other? And there's a ton of laws that are designed to, for, so the Israelites know that they are to worship one God, one God, which is incredibly different from every other people group that they were around back then, which I think is hard for us to relate to. Most people that we know in this room either worship one God or no gods, right? They are either Christians or atheists and agnostics, so they think it's zero. But the vast majority of the people that the Jewish people were around believed in thousands of gods. A thousand is way further apart from one than zero is. Do you know what I'm saying? So, so much of the Old Testament was designed to remind the Israelites, hey, I'm your God and that's it. And all these thousands of gods, they don't really exist. So do we have to obey all of those laws? What is the purpose behind them? How can we possibly remember all of them? I remember this is a true story. Uh, We had a house once, an apartment that had terrible ventilation. Like it was just stuffy all the time, right? And so when the kids would take showers and they would take a hot shower and get the room all steamy, the bathroom was like, like dense British London fog. Like they would open the window and all the smoke alarms would go off because there was so much steam coming out of the bathroom, right? And we would get mildew on the walls of this bathroom because they were plaster walls. And once you get the first spot of mildew, you should burn the house down because you will never, ever, ever get rid of it. It will be like that for the... And there's, you know, there's a rule about that in God's law, about what to do with when you get mildew in your house. Anyway, that's a side story. It has nothing to do with the sermon. The point that the New Testament makes about God's law is that we cannot obey it. Not perfectly, anyway. Like, the New Testament is super clear that God's law existed to kind of highlight how imperfect we are. Just how much we need, like, a perfect solution to this problem of sin that is in every single one of us. The the Old Testament serves as a highlighter to show just how broken we are, all of us. That's where Jesus comes in, right? He's the permanent fixer. 
Go back to the story. One by one, oldest to youngest, everybody drops their stone and walks away. And I love that little detail that John puts in there. Oldest to youngest. So the oldest guy in the crowd, he puts his rock away first and walks away. And it goes on down all the way to the youngest guy in the crowd. And finally he gives up, puts his rock down and walks away. I'm not old yet, right? Right? You guys, come on, make me feel better, please. I'm not old yet. I do kind of, the older I get, I, th- I think I understand why it was oldest to youngest. The older I get, the more I see just how sinful I am. And I don't mean like, gosh, I'm a terrible person, and I don't mean that I'm like, I feel worse about myself. It's that I, I, the older I am, the more I understand just how sin has infected me in every area of my life. Whereas when I was younger, I probably thought I was pretty okay. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't, do you all feel that? I feel that. The older I get, the more I realize, man, do I need a Savior. And I think that's what comes in here. The oldest guy in the crowd thought, oh, Jesus got me. And he was the quickest to admit it. And then finally it trickles down to the young guy who still thought he was pretty cool. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Jesus and the woman are finally left alone. And he offers her beautiful words of grace. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He didn't deny that the adultery took place, did he? He didn't sweep it under the rug or try and pretend like nothing ever happened. He forgave her. And then he said, move on. Be different. Stop doing this. It's bad for you. And that's all we hear about this woman. That's the end of her story. Some people speculate that she may have become one of the women to join Jesus' ministry and followed him around from that point on. We don't know. We don't actually know if she did leave her life of sin. We have no clue. That's never written. But I do kind of expect that... Uh, a life and soul-saving encounter with Jesus is going to have an effect on you, but we don't know. What a day that that woman experienced. Ripped from the middle of an affair, thrown in public in front of this religious teacher. A bunch of Jewish leaders are getting ready to kill you, and then you experience this grace like you've never experienced before in your life. A fresh start, a way out. What do y'all think we should learn from this story? What do we do with it? Sometimes we're like the Pharisees, aren't we? Most of us have been steeped in a religious life for, since we were kids. We know the best places to hide in the church building when we're playing sardines. And we've heard the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery a hundred times. If we trend to being like the Pharisees, ready to let her have it, what lesson is there for us? The first is, I think, that people are never to be used to prove a point, ever. I don't think we use people like that. I don't think we take that woman who is created in the image of God, just like everybody else in that circle, and use her to get back at our enemies. That is never appropriate for people who follow Jesus. People who decide to ignore God's law and live however they want are in a bad place. It is a hard way to live. I'm convinced of that. 
I think we've all experienced that in, at some point in our lives. We can feel that living outside of God's love and protection and disobeying Him is hard. It harms us in a very real way. God's laws exist to make us more like Him. They give us kind of guideposts for living. They put the barriers on the highway of life. The sin of adultery, when we decide to ignore the vows that we have taken uh, with, our, with our spouse, that harms us. It hurts us deeply. So God made a law against it to protect us. People that are in that state, people who are living a life of sin, are never to be used as a pawn in an argument. They're never supposed to be used to win a battle against your enemies. People in that situation need to be pointed back towards God. They need to be offered forgiveness. They need to be offered a way out. And they do not need to be used as a tool so I can win an argument. Being the religious person in the story is difficult. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to pretend for a minute that they weren't trying to use this woman. But they are the leaders of the Israelite people. They have an obligation to correct sin when it happens. So do we. When, when we see sin, when, when I see sin in your life, I am absolutely called to talk to you about it. That's in the New Testament a hundred times. You, when you see sin in my life, you are absolutely supposed to talk to me about it. You don't judge me. You don't say, hey, I saw this sin in your life and I know you're going to hell because of it. That's not our job. But our job is absolutely to confront each other lovingly, kindly, privately, right? I, I'm... I'm I kind of hesitate to say this because I don't want this church to become a place where we just gripe at each other for all the bad things everybody's doing, right? But don't you want to be a part of a church that is graciously and lovingly calling everybody in the room to be the best follower of Jesus they can possibly be? I want to be a part of that church. So I need to have trusted friends, people that I have said, you know what, when you see me messing up, tell me. And you need to have trusted friends, brothers and sisters in this room, that when they see you messing up, they tell you. And then we get to do things like offer them the grace that Jesus offered them and say, hey, I'm not condemning you. Stop sinning. Don't do that anymore. It's bad for you, right? So if you don't have that, get it. It's super important. Sometimes we're more like the woman who got caught. Sometimes we deserve punishment and we know it. Sometimes we're caught red-handed and we, we, we're so embarrassed and we feel such a sense of shame and embarrassment at where our lives have gone and we're just waiting for people to start throwing rocks at us. We just know there's nothing else left for us. Sometimes our lives are, have gotten so off track that we cannot imagine a way back to wholeness with God again. My dog, Mulder, he loves to dig in trash cans. Urgh, it drives me nuts. It's like a buffet for him. Just any trash can in the house is just a little snack tray, right? He goes in phases, but when he's in a trash phase, we have to hide all of our trash cans, like put them in the cupboards so that he can't get to it. It's terribly inconvenient. I don't know what it is about Frito chili cheese wrappers or, you know, coffee grounds or whatever, but he loves it. But he's so funny because he thinks he's subtle. 
And he thinks that nobody knows what's going on, but you can always hear his little nose popping up the lid on the bathroom trash can. Like, he's, he's not quiet at all. Nothing about Mulder is subtle. So he pops up the lid, and it's so fun to catch him in the act because I, if he could talk, I know what he's saying. He's like, oh, caught me again. I'm sorry. I knew I shouldn't have done it, but there's something delicious in there. I just know it. You know, and he kind of walks away with his tail between his legs. It's the same thing every single time. It's like you could see his self-esteem just being shattered. It is hard to be caught, if you don't mind me comparing us to my dog, Mulder. (laughs) It is. Like when we, any of us, are caught in the act of sin, it's hard and it's embarrassing, and we just want to run and hide. If you are like the woman who got caught, and we all have been there, I hope it's obvious by now in the sermon that the exact same grace that is offered to this woman can be offered to you, is offered to you. Most of the people in this room have experienced that kind of grace at some point in their lives when everything was messed up, when they are absolutely just steeped in sin, when it is everywhere in their life, and they realize they have nowhere else to go, and they're waiting for religious people to throw rocks at them. And then at some point, Jesus broke through and said, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. That is an incredibly freeing place to be. How's your relationship with your one person? Remember your one person? The one person in your life that you are convinced that God is telling you, you have to be like Jesus. You have to say to them, neither do I or Jesus or anybody at Central Christian Church condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. That is what we're asking everybody to do with this one person. How's your relationship with them? Did you call them this week? Did you ask them to come to church with you on Sunday? Did you say, hey, I'd love to meet for coffee and study John chapter 8. I have this story about an asterisk that I'd love to share with you. Have you done that today, this week? Are you going to do that this week? Because if we just keep talking about our one person and never picking up the phone and saying, let's need to meet, I have something so important to tell you, then we might as well not have a one person. Our one person is the person that God has gone like this, bumped the ball to us, and now it is time for us to spike it over the net and say, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Is that a message that you think people need to hear? Do you think people need to hear, neither do I condemn you. I was in the same spot you were in 10 years ago. And then Jesus made everybody around me put their rocks down and said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And that's what I've been trying to do ever since. Do you think that's a message that people need to hear? I love it when you talk back to me. Good job. Yes, it is. Sometimes I feel like there's a, there's a heaviness when we talk about our one person because what if, what if they get mad at me or what if they you know, yell at me or what if you know, they just say no? Oh my gosh, the worst thing that could happen is we shared some really good news with them. Then it's on them, right? <sighs> I got myself all worked up, didn't I? It's so important, church. I had a conversation just a couple weeks ago with somebody who, who noticed 
that the pews are more empty on every single Sunday, right? We are no longer in a society that, where people will just show up to church on a Sunday. Most people driving past Central Christian Church don't feel like they can come here on a Sunday unannounced. Did you know that? They think that this is a club for Christians. And if, they can't, if, they, if they're not a Christian already, they can't show up here. So guess what we do? We change tactics and we say, now it is my job to be the church at a coffee shop with that person and offer them the exact same messages that Sherm shares with us every single Sunday. Ooh, I need to calm down. I feel it, church. Have you guys offered that grace to the people that are around you, the people that are in your lives every single day? Have you been that person who is just so uninterested with the conflict going on around him that he just waits until it's time and he says, I don't condemn you anymore. Stop sinning. Have you worked hard to find that balance between neither do I condemn you and go now and leave your life of sin? There's a tension there, isn't it? Right? I don't want to condemn you, but at the same time, I don't want you to stay where you are That requires some change on your part. And that tension, I want to be right in the middle of that. I'd like to pray together with you all this morning. And I'm just going to ask that God would help us to live in that spot. That hard place between not condemning and asking somebody to change. You all pray with me? Uh, Father, I thank you very much for this passage with the asterisks in our Bible. I thank you for the way um, that it speaks to us like in <laughs> right now in the exact place that we are. It's kind of a universal message. God, may we this week be so ready to offer that same grace to people. I pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.